The Bible is an interesting assortment of different types of writings. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature, history, prophecy, and even personal stories of the lives of individual people. In the New Testament, much of it is taken up with letters known as epistles, which is just, it's the, just the Greek word for letters. Some of these letters were written to specific churches, although their teaching is mostly applicable wherever similar issues arise. Other letters are written to Christianity as a whole. They're, they're just general letters written out to all of Christendom. And that was their original intention. Others were written to individual people within specific churches. Three of those letters were written to preachers within localized churches with guidance from the Apostle Paul on how they could best go on leading their congregations. These are known as the pastoral epistles. And we're going to continue in one of them today. We went through a portion of the same letter last week. But before we do, I got to tell you a little story. Early on in my marriage, I did a fairly major oopsie. And when I say that, I don't mean I committed some heinous sin, although my wife might disagree with that. It was rather how upset I had made my wife one day. I don't even remember what it was or what precisely I used it for. But I was out in the garage and I, I, this was 25 years ago, so I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was working on something. And it was dirty, it was rusty, it was greasy, it was just terrible. And I needed to clean it. For whatever I was working on, I think it was probably a car. I needed to clean this part. And nothing in my garage was big enough to hold this and like the solvent and stuff that I needed to use to clean it. So I did what any husband would do, right? I went in and rummaged through her kitchen until I found a container that was big enough to put this part in to use to clean and get the, the part fixed so that I could repair whatever it was that I was needing to fix. After a while, I was visited by my lovely wife in the garage who discovered to her horror just what I was doing with whatever specific and not easily obtained kitchen container I had pilfered from her realm. I remember a lot of screaming. <laughs> now you may have always known this, I certainly know it now. But it seems that putting rusty, greasy, filthy, covered metal objects, along with cleaning agents of the industrial sort, into kitchen containers intended to use for food now renders them worthless. <laughs> Apparently saying, I was going to clean it before I put it back wasn't quite good enough 
in her eyes. It was insufficient to make it food safe. Who knew? Apparently she did. On the upside, I now had a high-quality, large container for use in the garage. It would seem that, in her opinion, the more logical thing to do would have been to make a trip to Walmart and purchase a $5 plastic tub that I could have used instead of the $50 whatever it was from her kitchen. I asked her if she remembered this, and she said, yeah, but she couldn't remember exactly what the item was, which means I'm doing better. <laughs> it seems that even though I hadn't thought about it, they make different sorts of items for dirty, filthy stuff like that. Weird as it may seem, this is what was expected of me. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is a little bit of an odd section in how it starts. It starts out by saying, remind them. Well, that instantly prompts the question, remind who? Well, if we go back a little to verse 2 of this chapter, it tells us, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
To me, this is especially comforting in that it spells out that the purpose of this letter, even though it was written to one man almost 2,000 years ago, the purpose of this letter goes beyond that and it is being fulfilled in this room right now. What we are in the process of doing is why he wrote it. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wanted to make sure that down through the countless generations, this solid teaching from God made it to you and to me. What's exciting is that we are here also under its challenge to make sure that that continues beyond us. It isn't just supposed to make it to us. It's supposed to get past beyond us. I remember in college, I was reading about this, and I can't remember if it's something that a professor told me or if it was something that, um, that was in uh, uh, some material we had. There was a church in our brotherhood, and I think it was a professor that told me this. It's been a long time. There was a church in our brotherhood that had had as its goal for about a decade, its goal in life as a church was to make it to the 100th anniversary of its founding. That's what they were aiming at. That's what they were trying to do. That's where they were focusing their energy, making it to exist to the point where they had their 100th anniversary celebration. And guess what? They did it. They had their 100th anniversary celebration. They'd been planning for it for years. And then immediately after their 100th anniversary celebration, they walked out, shut the doors, and locked them forever. Because that was their only goal. They had shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and they said, if we could just make it to our 100-year anniversary. And that's where their energy was focused. Let's have us get to this point. And they did. Paul starts off this section with a warning about quarreling over words. Now, words mean things, and that's important. Sometimes people will distort what a word means for the express purpose of being deceitful. People will change the meanings of words because they don't like what it says, so they want to change what it means in order to suit their agenda. However, it gets to be a problem when we as Christians expend our time on fruitless arguments about words. I remember one time, someone, and this has been a while, someone got a bit worked up with me because they had been around when there was somebody who was fairly new to the church who had, I guess, a couple of times in that conversation referred to me as Pastor Kevin. Now, if you aren't familiar, and I kind of hope that you aren't, Decades ago, there was a big hullabaloo within our brotherhood about not calling the preacher pastor. You don't do that. 
Because technically, the term in the New Testament is specifically for elders. Fair enough. I don't disagree with that. But I think that for some people, it really had more to do with trying to point out how we're different from those denominations who use that term in that way. Well, in many churches I've been in, including this one, the preacher is one of the elders. So that's kind of a moot point. But even if it weren't, if someone comes in here, say they're new to the church, they're new to this church, that's just something that they're used to doing, calling the preacher the pastor. If you think that I'm going to stop them in mid-sentence and say, oh, you're wrong there. That word is used in this particular way. Don't use that for me and just jump down their throat. Or especially if they have come to me as a hurting soul looking for pastoral counseling and I'm going to stop that, interrupt their exact use of phrases, well, that you'd probably be mistaken. What I might do is say, you can just call me Kevin. But getting into arguments over technical uses of words, guess what that does? It does not build up the church, and it does alienate people. Here's the funny thing about this verse that we're looking at. There's some disagreement among biblical scholars as to just how it should be interpreted. Is it that we shouldn't engage in word battles like never get in arguments in general? Or is it don't get into arguments over the minutia of how a word is supposed to be used? Guess what? Those scholars got into arguments over that. Regardless of how it's interpreted, the meaning is that we're doing zero good evangelizing if we Christians are arguing over comparatively unimportant things while people roll their eyes at us and go off into damnation because we were too busy with our high-minded arguments about the specific use of words. Now, a couple of verse, verses later, it does say that some people are getting all worked up over pointless babble. This could mean simply that they had a lot of false teachings because it says that they could spread like gangrene. And one of the guys he mentions who was doing this, Hymenaeus, is a person who in the, in the book of 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 20, had been excommunicated from the church for failing to hold to the truth of the faith. So I kind of doubt that this was over some arguments about semantics. In fact, here it tells us that they were going around spreading the false teaching that the resurrection from the dead had already happened. Jesus must have already come back and people already went and you missed the boat. Sorry about your luck. Paul, however, transitions away from that. And he points out that God isn't about to leave those who have accepted him behind. He knows those whom are genuinely true to him. And he, Paul, goes on with further warning that those who name the name of the Lord, i.e. those who follow God 
and love him need to depart from iniquity. We need to leave sin and the ongoing practice of sinfulness. We can't expect to call ourselves as belonging to him and at the same time willfully, knowingly lie in the filth of our own sins. It's one thing to stumble from time to time and fall into the muck. It's another thing entirely to wallow in it. He makes the very strong point about how there are different types of vessels for use in a house. Some for noble or honorable reasons and some for ignoble or dishonorable uses. I believe that what he's saying here is that you don't use something which is intended for high use, like serving the dinner to your family and guests for disgusting uses, like cleaning nasty engine parts or cleaning out a clogged septic tank or maybe picking up the uh, leftovers in the dog park, if you know what I mean because it is incompatible with their intended use. You don't take a beautiful vessel, an object intended for high use, and use it for disgusting uses. That's a bad idea. You don't want to do that. And he's saying, basically, that we are vessels intended for high use. We have been made righteous by God and we can't continually go back to being used for the muck. Now imagine if I were to take this bowl of grapes sitting right there and offer them to you that I were to come down and say, would you care for some nice fresh grapes? My wife just got them at the store yesterday. I tried some last night. They're delicious. And I came walking up to you, and I were offering it to you. Would you want some grapes? Go ahead and raise your hand if you, like, if you would want some grapes. If I, Okay, some of you don't like grapes. Some of you are like, I don't know where he's going with this, so I'm... Now imagine as I'm walking towards you, I said offhandedly, oh yeah, this is the bowl that I used the other day when I was trying to get the toilet unstuck and when I picked it up off the thing, I didn't want the water slopping all over so I needed something to pour all that water into. Want some grapes? Anybody? Anybody want some grapes? If you think I used my wife's nice crystal for unclogging the toilet, you think that I'd you must think I didn't learn anything in the last 31 years. Oh, that's them. I would not do that. But if I had, there's not a person on earth who would take those grapes and eat them. I'm betting there's not anybody that I offered them to. Who would take it if I said that? This is the sort of thing 
that Paul is warning about. When we're set apart for God, regardless of what kind of vessel we had been and what sort of use we had been being put to, God cleanses us from that past and makes us perfectly clean. Unlike anything I could ever manage to do with my wife's kitchen utensils after using them for some greasy, nasty job in the garage. But we aren't supposed to be going back to using ourselves for such ignoble reasons. This is why in verse 22, he says to Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name, uh, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. When you have been purified and set apart for honorable uses, you aren't to just go continually back and forth between honorable and dishonorable, noble and ignoble. Whether this is certain behaviors or certain teachings which would lead to dishonorable behaviors. This is why Paul continues in verse 23. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. We're beyond just mere arguing over semantics here. This isn't just words that people disagree on how they're supposed to be used, which is also problematic in that those types of arguments are also useless. But we are into a realm of false teaching. The foolish and ignorant aspect here is people who suppose to be learned and think they are wise but are really being like eighth graders, arguing over things they really don't understand and insisting they are correct and know what they're talking about. These false teachers that had been in were teaching all kinds of things contrary to the gospel taught in Scripture. The proper response of the Christian and especially of someone who is teaching the faith to less knowledgeable, newer Christians, or to the curious who are not yet Christians. It is a difficult, arduous task sometimes. It is not for the faint of heart. We are called to be patient and non-argumentative, even when we're dealing with someone who is clearly an opponent, who is being evil just in how they act to us. The reason for this is that we aren't in this to win an argument. We are not out there trying to sell the gospel for the purpose of winning an argument. We're in it for the purpose of winning souls. We are in it to gently win over their heart and their mind in a way which God will use to lead them to repentance. Verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. People out there have had their minds and their hearts taken captive by the teachings of Satan. And that is what we are trying to expunge from them, not win an argument. I used to love to argue in my 20s. Boy, I, I just loved to argue. Get in an argument with somebody, I'd make up facts. Boy, I'd win that argument. But I wasn't winning them. And that's what we're called to do is win people to Jesus Christ, not have us look good because, ha, 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 I'm a better arguer than you are, and I'm smarter than you, and I know my stuff better than you. We're called to win souls to Christ. Now, I want to say something here to clarify a couple of thoughts. We are not required as Christians to endlessly endure abuse from people for the sake of their salvation. That's not our job. We have to bring the truth of the gospel to them in such a way that we are not being abusive to them. But whether or not they accept it is not up to us they are responsible for whether or not they are willing to, as it says, come to their senses. That's their part. Our part is to bring the gospel to them in a gentle and loving way. But we are not required to continually live in abusive situations with people because they're mean-spirited and won't come to the Lord. I cannot tell you how many times I have had people say that they're trying so hard to win this person for Christ and so they've described to me the terrible things that they have endured from those people because they don't want to put them off for Christ. You have done your part when you bring them Christ. After a while, it is not your issue anymore. That's not me saying this. That's Jesus Christ saying this. Sometimes as Christians, we are called to take an evaluation of the people we are trying to lead to the Lord and decide if we should continue. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 5, and, when, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. I want to clarify something. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and this is something Paul himself did in Acts chapter 13. He had taken the gospel to people. He had gone to them multiple times. They organized a resistance against him to abuse him and get rid of him. They drove him away from them, and when he left, he shook off his sandals and said, I am finished with you. 
Sometimes we get our minds stuck in situations like this and we think, I can't give up on them. I don't want them to go to hell. Now I really appreciate a brother or sister who is this dedicated to saving others from damnation. I really am. I would, however, point something out. When you're thinking, I can't leave this person, I can't walk away from them because they'll go to hell if I don't persist. There are 2.5 billion people on this planet who claim the name of Christ. That means that one in three on this planet claim the name of Christ. And if you're in the Western Hemisphere, the odds of that are way, way higher. Don't you think that God has the ability to steer one of them with good teaching into the path of that person that you're having to step away from because they're abusive to you? I think God can handle it. Over and above that, there have been an estimated between 5 and 7 billion copies of the Bible published in the last 1,500 years, almost all of them in the last 150. If it's somebody that you have personally met, they cannot help but have been in contact with the Word of God. It's been in their presence multiple times. We are supposed to bring the gospel to people, but they're supposed to pick it up and read it too. That's on them. They're not going to get to heaven and, 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 and be standing there facing judgment and say, God, nobody ever told me. I never had opportunity to read. He's going to say, excuse me, you grew up in Indiana. There's like, 500 million Bibles, and of the six million and a half, six and a half million people in Indiana, probably three and a half million of them are Christians. You didn't hear about me? I don't think so. We sometimes take on the aspect of it's all on me, but I want you to think about that for a second. That's a little bit arrogant. That's saying God can't handle it with anybody else. He's got a few people working for him. We are called to bring the gospel. We are called to share the gospel. We are called to refute false teachings about the gospel. We are not called to endlessly endure the abuse of those who reject the gospel. God is able to put things in their lives. He put you in their life. He can put another Christian, he can put the word and bring those willing to do it to come to their senses. Our job is to refrain from polluting ourselves. We're not to be the vessel that is used in the kitchen and in the septic tank and back in the kitchen. That's not good enough. 
We have to refrain from iniquity so that we are suitable vessels to bring the gospel to other people. But we can't be the vessel and force feed them the food. How would you like me to come out there and pry your mouth open and crack? You are going to eat this grape, by golly. That's not our job. Our job is to bring it to them. Maybe a few times. Don't give up after once. But their job is to come to their senses from hearing the gospel and accept it. But here's the best part. Unlike me in the garage with Kathy's kitchen container, God is really, really good at cleaning out the filth. He can take a vessel which has had the most vile scum and villainy and make it spotless, make it pure. And he can do it over again for those who have strayed. Or when we've accidentally dropped that vessel onto a filthy garage floor. And he promises that he will. So long as we continue to come to him in faith, ask for forgiveness, and ask to be made clean again. You can't do it. Your vessel, if you have not accepted Christ, your vessel is filthy. It has been used for ignoble purposes. There's nothing you can do to make it clean. But you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ, give yourself to him, and he promises to wash you whiter than snow. If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do so today. The praise team is going to lead us in song. If you've never accepted Christ, don't wait another day. Please stand as we sing.